I'm Pastor Wayne. Pastor Randall is not here today because he has taken a well-deserved week of holidays. He and his son Josiah were out in BC. They flew out there on Monday, Tuesday. Flew out there Tuesday and they're coming back later today. But while they were out there, Pastor Randall had the opportunity <clears throat> to visit with the Coopers. Wasn't that special? He drove up to Squamish and was able to spend some time with the Coopers up there. And then also, Barry and Donna Esau, missionaries that we support here from this church. They live out in BC in Chilliwack. We're, did you know that Pastor Randall served in Chilliwack for three or four years out there? Did you? How many knew that? Oh, my goodness, where you been? Okay, that's where he, he was there before he went, I think before he went to Plattsville and then on from there. But anyways, <clears throat> he was able to visit with them as well. What a special opportunity. And you know what? We continue to pray for Pastor Randall, that the spirit of joy will be his strength and the power of grief will not overrule. And that's what we are continuing to stand for him in these very tumultuous times. But we are so grateful that he and Josiah were able to make their way out there. Now we need to pray for a safe trip. Let's do that right now, okay? Father, in the name of Jesus, we know that wherever we go, we are in the hollow of your hand, whether that's up in the air or on the earth. We just thank you, Lord, that as Josiah and Pastor Randall travel back, their journey will be safe. They will have great time of reuniting with each other and even a time of rejuvenation. And Lord, as he comes back to the office tomorrow, I am trusting, Lord, for your strength to continue to prevail and the joy of the Lord will be his strength. In the name of Jesus, amen. Over the past few weeks, no, let's say one week, the identity crisis has been before us. Who do you think you are? I am trusting today that after what we have seen already, that we are going to have a full understanding of who we are in Christ because we are dealing with some very important issues here that have not been talked about very much. But by the grace of God, we want to do this over these next few weeks. Identity theft is a big concern in our digital age. Pastor Randall told us that last week. And he said that, uh, remember he told you about, how many were here last week? Okay, now I'm going to check your, your memory. He told you about a Regina man who was arrested last month to face 40 identity theft charges related to 131 victims. In that man's car, they found, the police found, numerous break and enter tools, several pairs of gloves, some house keys, and a bat, how do you say that? A balaclava? You know that hood you put over your head? A computer bag as well was found with a number of driver's licenses, passports, checks, and other personal documents. And needless to say, when the police checked all that out, those things did not have any of them registered to him. Identity theft in our digital age. Did you know that in the Christian's life, identity theft is one of Satan's deadliest tricks? Why? When you lose sight of who you are in Christ, you lose your way, you lose the truth, and you lose life. Satan's deadliest trick is to make you lose your way Lose the truth and lose life. 
Today, Pastor Randall talked about that last week. Now today, I want to go on, and this is about identity restored. I want to talk about your new ID. Instead of a sinner, you're called a saint. Instead of lost, you're called found. Instead of enemy, you're called friend. Instead of righteous, unrighteous, you're called righteous. Instead of sick, you're called healed. Instead of poor, you're called rich. Your faith will be stronger. Your prayer life will be enhanced. You will walk in a new level of authority. And when we have the tag days and you wear these, hello, my name is on here, there are so many names that can be put on there. But oh, how we want all of you, all of us, to be able to have names like this, beloved, included, known, restored, healed. And even if you can't spell, and you put up adopted with the wrong spelling, the Lord still loves you. What did I say? Okay. My wife will tell me after whatever I did wrong. Fact of the matter is, the sad part is that if you put a name tag on here and you wrote on that name tag, not your name, but what you believed about yourself, we would be absolutely appalled at what some people would be writing on there. They haven't told a soul, but the Lord knows. The Lord knows. And he says, I have come to change your name. Last week, Pastor Randall identified the first identity theft. Now, we were talking about this and saw this, so I'm going to kind of get you wrapped into where we were from last week. Now, do you see that? Go to the next slide there. The first identity theft. I want you to read with me those verses of Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. Read together. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed the leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see what happened? They lost their way. They lost the truth, and they lost life. Two verses to describe that catastrophic choice, Genesis 3, 6, and 7, and a decision that plunged all of us into a position where their pure relationship with God was severed. By that I mean there was no more walks in the garden in the cool of the day with God. Their eternal physical life and spiritual life was terminated By that I mean sweat and hard work, pain and eventual death would now be the order of the day. And their safety also and their security previously enjoyed was snatched away. And by that I mean shame and fear and insecurity and the blame game would plague mankind from that point on. Can you just imagine the devilish delight that permeated the atmosphere surrounding Adam and Eve when they suddenly saw their original identity found in God stolen from them through the deception of that serpent who was empowered by Satan? 
Now, before you get too high and mighty to blame Adam and Eve, let me ask you this question. In this past six months, have you made a choice or a decision that has plunged you into the darkness of regret? What have your activities been involving? Could it be that you've hooked up to something on the computer that was a tempting site and you opened it? What about the possibility of a questionable place that you said, I'm just going to go just once? And you knew right well you shouldn't have been there. Or what about that shady transaction that you were involved in? And in here you were being admonished, don't do it. What about you may have made a decision to drive your car and you were under the influence of alcohol? Who else did you put in danger? What kind of choices have you and I made that have plunged us into a sea of regret? What activity have you been involved in when no one's been looking? You've been on that business trip alone, except the Lord was right there. So often we're like children with a cookie jar. What do we do? We're going to take a cookie. Where do we look? That way, that way, that way, that way, and we grab. But we didn't look this way. What decisions have you made or choices have you made that you are now suffering from the darkest night of regret. If only I could go back. Now listen, back to Adam and Eve. They were caught. But I thank God, I thank God that even in that horrible, demonic, catastrophic situation, God says, I got this. I got this. I got this. You know what did what God did? He did two things. Number one, he read the riot act to the enemy. Listen what he said. He said, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will bruise his heel. He read the riot act to the enemy. And then secondly, you know what he did? He provided for his kids. What did he do? Hey, he said, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. Suddenly, because of the the deception of the enemy, they were suddenly aware that which had clothed them, the very glory of God, was now gone. And they were utterly naked and they were cowering, trying to cover up. And they grabbed some fig leaves. Oh, how often we will try to cover up using whatever's at our disposal, but it's not enough. God knew that a fig leaf wasn't going to be enough. And he had an animal killed. And he took of the blood of that animal. It went on the ground. But the skin became a garment of protection and covering for his creation. 
He provided for his kids. And he's not stopped doing that to this day. He's providing. Why did God do what he was doing? Because God is the God of restoration. Enemy loves to steal, kill, and destroy. And it looks like there's no hope. However, God says, I got this. And he's the God of restoration. And he started with that animal that was killed. And the garment that they could wear. God's plan for restoration can be described and summarized in three words. Don't ever forget this. The great exchange. The great exchange. And you see when we look up at this next slide. He is the God of restoration. He is the one who is taking that which is broken and is a mess. And he says, no problem. I'm the God of restoration. You see what happens is that God is a God of restoration. When we place the broken pieces of our lives in his hands, he restores them to a beauty that far outshines the former. Now there's two words that you've got to understand here when we're talking about God, the God of restoration, that's mercy and peace. He's a God of mercy. Listen, he doesn't give us the bad things we deserve. Please hang on to that. He doesn't give us the bad things we deserve. That's mercy. Do you know what we deserved? The wages of sin is death. All we have sinned and gone astray. There's none righteous, no, not one. We don't have one good thing to give him. So he doesn't give us the bad things we deserve. But because he's a God of grace, he gives us the good things we don't deserve. He doesn't give us the bad things we deserve, but he gives us the good things we don't deserve. You're going to have to let that percolate a little bit, but let me try to explain it. Suppose, I think it was D.L. Moody that brought this forth. He said, suppose you killed a man You exhaust all means to acquit yourself and you have failed. You are now awaiting execution. Thanks to God, in comes the king. And the king gives you a royal pardon. Now remember, you were condemned to die. But the king comes in, gives you a royal pardon. You are now a free man. Your criminal record is absolutely wiped away. And you are given a second chance. Now is that grace? No, that's mercy. He doesn't give us the bad things we deserve. Then, then the king grabs the microphone and he begins to declare an amazing proclamation to all of his kingdom, whoever can hear him. I want you to know that this man I am taking into my family as my adopted son. I want you to know that officially he is my heir. I want you to know that I am allowing him to dine and to eat at my table with me. I am giving him everything I own. He is making, or I am making him co-ruler of everything In my kingdom. Now that is grace. He gives us the good things we don't deserve. 
Here's some more examples. He gives me wholeness. And these are examples of the great exchange. And they're all embodied in grace. He gives me wholeness. He takes my brokenness. He gives me health. And he takes my sickness. He gives me forgiveness. And he takes my sin. Oh, here's one. Did you know 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this? Listen to this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Every need supplied. Oh, yes, he gives me supply. And he takes my poverty and my lack. Why did God do what he did? Because simply this, he's the God of restoration. He's the God of restoration. You can't remove that from his attributes. He's the God of restoration. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what the pit of regret is that you're in. He's the God of restoration. And he has a way out of that maze to get you onto solid ground once again. Why did God do what he did? Because he had a plan already in mind. He had a savior in mind. He had a savior. There are three pictures there that I want you to see in step one. The next slide. We're coming up to the Christmas season. By the way, I think there's 60 or 70 more days till Christmas. Just wanted to let you know. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. That's step one. That was before the cross. Then step two is at the cross, and that's where he gave Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's step two. And then step three is he exalted Jesus, and this is after the cross. And that's where John, In 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, he says this, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. You see, folks, that's why we have the written word of God. This is the direction. This is the map that takes us through this maze from where our identity was stolen to where it can be restored. And here are the facts all about it. You see, God wanted to restore our identity in Christ by giving back to us a pure relationship with God that was severed before. To give back our eternal life with God, which was terminated by the enemy, which was our safety and our security in God that was snatched away. He just wanted to bring that all back. What Satan gleefully thought he had control of, He had to watch it slip through his fingers. There was a large church down in the U.S. who would put on an elaborate Easter pageant. And although the dramatization wasn't literally how it all happened on that Easter time, it accurately and symbolically illustrated what is spiritually true. So what grabs your attention, though, when you start watching, as we watched this morning, was the man in black. And Satan was depicted there as the one who was just making his way around to different people. You would see him, first of all, tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And he would make his way up and whisper in his ear. You would see him whispering into Judas's ear to go ahead and do the work of betraying Jesus. This is what was put in drama form in that play. 
And then you would see him standing near Peter as Peter assuredly declared his answer to Jesus. Now, here's Peter saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Satan's standing right here. When Jesus had said, Who do men say that I am? Peter said that, and it wasn't because he came up with that answer. It was because God gave him that answer. And then you see Satan coming over and edging up closer to Peter because Jesus is now telling the rest of the disciples, guys, I'm going to die. We're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. And then he comes up right to Peter, and he says, tell him, don't you do that. Don't you die. Don't give your life. It was like Peter got a slap in the face. I'm sorry, Satan got a slap in the face when Jesus said, you get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking You don't know what you're talking about. It's of man, not of God. Whoa, Satan didn't quite know what to do with that one. But the most dramatic part of that whole drama that was shared that day was on resurrection morning. You see, in this sound effects that they had, there was a great rumbling. And they had stuff shaking. And Satan, in his regular black garment, he comes rushing over to where the tomb is and where the stone is. And he is pushing with all of his force, all of his weight against that stone. And the stone keeps pushing back and he can't stop it. And all of a sudden the stone comes over and it comes right over and lands on top of Satan. And out comes Jesus from the grave and stands on the rock and declares, I am Lord. And you suddenly realize this was one incredible moment. Do you know why they could say that with such assurance? Because Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Did you know that if the gods of this world would have known they would never have crucified the king of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. They would never have done that. But you know what Satan's tactic is now, even though they lost that battle? You know what their tactic, his tactic is now? The God of this world has blinded the minds of those that don't believe lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. He doesn't give up but I'll tell you folks he knows he has but a short time. He knows his end is in sight. But oh, how he would love to continue to deceive. Now all along, in this great exchange, and in this restoring of identity, all along, I've been explaining what Jesus' part is in this whole identity restored process. Now I want to come to what our part is. Because God could do all things And he has done all things. It's a finished deal. There is no plan B. 
plan A was Jesus would come to this earth. He would give his life on the cross. He would be buried. He would rise three days later and he would come forth from the dead. He would be on this earth for a few days after that. He would ascend into heaven. He would send his Holy Spirit and he'd say to all those who would follow him, he said, you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he says, there's coming a day I will come back again. The whole process is right before us. But folks, what's our part? What's our part? Here it is. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to, be, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You see, in John chapter 1, it says, the Lord came full of grace and truth. And Jesus made it very clear when he was here. He said, look, I am the way, not our way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then it says in John 1, 12, what you have there, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So now we're centering on receiving him. Receiving him. Corey Ten Boom, who was one of the prisoners of the Holocaust, and later after her release, traveled all over, sharing the good news about Jesus. She was in Mexico and she asked a boy, son, are you a child of God? And he said, Senora, I go to church every Sunday. Corey said, well, that's good, but that's not sufficient. When I go into a garage, I do not become a car. <laughs> if a mouse is born in a biscuit box tin, it doesn't become a biscuit. Son, there is only one way to become a child of God. You must obey John 1.12. Those who receive him. To them he gives the right, the power to become children of God, even those that believe on his name. And the boy said, Senora, but my parents are fine children of God. Corey said, oh, God bless them, son. God bless them. But don't forget, God, does have, God has no grandchildren. <coughs> it's a personal decision on your part. Our faith is one generation away from extinction. Young people, you have a choice. Just as I did. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I know the Lord loves you and he's speaking to you even right now. Doesn't matter. Whether mom and dad have it all together, you're the one that has to make the decision. Because you will never, they will never stand before God and give an account for your decision. We're here to help them. We're here to guide them. We can train up a child in the way he should go. Still their choice. Still their choice. Oh, receiving Jesus is a very personal decision to experience restored identity the Jesus way you must personally receive him. I want to talk about another example of how the enemy seeks to deceive so that people think 
Hey, I'm cool. I'm okay. I've got it all together. I'm ready. If I should die before I wake, <laughs> I know where my soul's going to go. Do you? Do you? Bruce Wilkinson had finished sharing in a church and was putting his materials away at the front of the church. A woman brought her husband up to Bruce where he was and said, Bruce, this is Rudy. And then she said, I have to go do some other stuff. And she just left him there with Bruce. And Bruce felt awkward, and he knew that Rudy felt awkward. So Bruce asked, well, Rudy, um, how might I help you? Well, he said, my wife wants me to get religion. And he said, Bruce said, why? Well, she doesn't want me to go to hell. Well, Bruce said, are you planning to go to hell shortly? And, of course, he was just trying to be making a little bit light at that moment. And Rudy recognized that, so he just kind of laughed. But then Bruce said this. He said, Rudy, I have a question. When you stand before God, what is going to keep you out of hell? (laughs) There was dead silence. Then Rudy said, well, I guess I never thought about it quite like that. But really, I'm not a bad person. I know some guys who've been running around on their wives. I don't do that. I am a faithful partner. And really, I do try to be a nice guy most of the time. Bruce said, that's great. So I kind of think from how you're talking that you kind of view God as having a big scale. Wouldn't you think so? Like on one side. On one side would be your sins. Is the next slide up there, Joel? There you go. Thank you. On one side would be your sins. Now, Rudy, you do sin, don't you? Oh, yeah. I know I do. So on one side would be your sins. On the other side would be all those good things you do for your wife, your kids, your community, and so on. Am I on the right track? Oh, man, that's got a tutti. That's exactly how it is. Well, Bruce continued. He said, well, when God puts your life on his big scale, you'll have more good on one side than on the other, and everything will be okay then? That's what you're depending on. Got it. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly how I'm seeing it. I got all this good over here, a bad oh my. Rudy knew that he had crossed that important line of understanding. Well, Rudy said, or Bruce said, Rudy, I want to show you something. So he took out his notebook, he took out a pen, and then he made that line. I put it up here so you could see it. On one side, totally evil. On the other side, totally good. 0% good on that side. 100% good on that side. 50% in the middle. I lived at that mark all through school. It was amazing, 50%. Always wanting to just get a little bit more. Is that how you're living your life? Just over the edge. Well, Rudy said, yeah, I understand. He said, okay, I'll tell you what. Why don't you put an X on that line, somewhere where you believe when you die, you're going to be, that's going to be how good you are. And you're trusting that the scales is going to tip. I got to go that way. The scales is going to tip to the good. So where would you put that mark of an X? <laughs> he, he grabbed the pen. He went, oh, he was going to put 75, but he backed it up and then he went to 65 and oh he pulled it away and then finally he settled on 70 and he put an X on the line that would look like where it was 70% 
Well, it was kind of a feeble attempt. But then Bruce said, Rudy, now suppose you reached 70% right on. That's how good you were. And then, and then he said, then you die. Now you're standing in front of God. And you get to heaven's gate. And you discover, once you get there, oh, no. It was 71%. That was the standard that God had set. What are you going to do, Rudy? He says, I guess I don't get in and I go to hell. Bruce said, Rudy, listen, I think that finding out where the actual X should be on that line, according to God's standard, would be the most important question of your life. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I guess it is. Well, he said, think about it. He started to pack up his things, was ready to leave, and Rudy said, sir, Where is the X supposed to be? Could you show me? Took his pen, Bruce took his pen, and he went right over to the 100%, and he put a big X. And Rudy said, that's not fair. That's impossible. No one can get to heaven by that standard. And Bruce said, so you realized and you agree that no one can be 100% good in their lifetime and solve the problem of sin in their life on their own? Oh, I guess so, he said. Rudy, what if I told you that the penalty for sin, even one sin, is death? The wages of sin is death. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the facts. Rudy said, well, that wouldn't even seem fair at all. No one's perfect. Everyone sins sometime. And Bruce said, that's exactly true. And from the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden, because of sin, death has been the consequence. But now think of it this way. Say you got into trouble and you had to appear before a judge who sentenced you to die. But you tell the judge, please, sir, let me live. I promise I promise I'll do a lot of community service. I won't ever do it again. Do you think that would work? No, he said, it wouldn't. Obviously, I have no hope, he said, of ever reaching God's standard. And he said, Rudy, you're right. There is no hope. Unless, 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 Rudy, you can find a substitute to stand in your place who was 100% good to stand before God. Rudy, that's what Jesus did because he was 100% good. He's the one that stood there and he took all of your sin and he said, you are the 100% good now. God is a substitute for you for the whole world besides yourself. He paid the penalty of death for sin once for all. And then he said, he pointed back to the X where he had put at 70, and here's the 100. He said, now here's the choice. Rudy, you marked it at 70. This is what Jesus has done according to the word. The choice is yours. You can believe in your good works and hope that 70% mark is good enough to get into God's heaven, or you can believe what the Bible says and trust in Jesus and his death on your behalf. There's your choice. He read John 3.16 to him and Rudy said, you know what? The second choice makes sense to me. And he said, dear God, I'm sorry for my sins and now I know that I can't do anything to fix them. So I accept Jesus' part as full payment for my sin and I receive him as my savior. And Jesus, I'm going to start serving you right now. His identity was restored for all. 
who received Jesus. And here's one more slide. Identity restored. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. You need to understand this is only a free gift. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. But I want you to understand something. It's not just about wiping out life or wiping out sin. Suppose you were a businessman and you had made some transactions that were not good and you owed $1 million at the bank and as every day went on, you were, the debts were piling. The, the number was going from one million to two million, whatever. But you have, it's just gone over the top. You can't even force yourself to look at the ledger. You just leave it to the accountant. Just keep me informed. You're losing sleep at night. You have created an immense sea of regret. Then you hear of one of your friends who has become a billionaire. <laughs> Somehow your friend gets access to the books and the books reveal you're in big trouble. You know what he did? That billionaire friend wiped out the debt with his own resources just wiped it out. But not just that. He didn't leave him with an empty bank account. He put in $5 million. And the debt's gone. Wow. You come into the office the next day, unknown this is taking place, and you look, it's gone, and I got five million in the bank. You see, that's what Jesus did. He didn't just die and forgive your sins. You read about what he did to give you abundant living. You just read Ephesians chapter one. God has blessed you with all spiritual blessings. They are so numerous, folks, that we have actually had them printed on here, and this doesn't even cover it all. But dear folks, I want you to know, this is the five million in your account. Your debt's already been paid. Sin has been washed away. When you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you are washed clean, and you got five million in the bank account, if that even describes it. When you see yourself who you really are in Christ, you suddenly realize I don't serve God to gain his acceptance because I am already accepted, so I serve God. I do not follow him to be loved. I'm already loved, so I follow him. The worship team, would you come forward, please? It is not what I do that determines who I am. It's who I am that determines what I do. Did you know it says, beloved, now we are children of God. Now. But as many as received him, God's part sent Jesus. Our part, believe and receive. Now, folks, something that you may not be prone to do. And that is to read with your voice what is written here. I am going to invite you to read. I'm going to go to the next slide. I'm going to invite you to read. And what we're going to be reading is this paper, but without the scripture verses. I want you to hear with your voice what you are saying. 
If you have received Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you have been somehow wallowing in a sea of regret over something, God is the God of restoration, and he says, today is a new day. And can you begin to speak what God says about you? Let's start reading from the top. In Christ, I am accepted. I am no longer rejected, unloved, or dirty because God says, I am his child. I am Christ's friend. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord, and I am one spirit with him. I have been bought with a price as I belong to God. I am a messenger of Christ's body. I am a saint. I've been adopted as God's child. I have direct access to God through the Holy Spirit. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. In Christ, I am secure. I am no longer guilty, unprotected, alone, or abandoned because God says, I am free from condemnation. I am assured that all things work together for good. I am free from any condemning charges against me. I cannot be separated from God's love. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I can find grace and mercy to help me in time of need. I am confident that the good work God has begun in me will be perfected. In Christ, I am significant. I am no longer worthless, inadequate, helpless, or hopeless because God says, I am the salt and light of the earth. I am a branch of the true vine, a channel of his life. I've been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am a personal witness of Christ. I am God's temple. I am a minister of reconciliation for God. I am God's co-worker. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's who God says you are. Who are you saying you are? What have you got written on your name tag? Is there some sea of regret that you have found yourself just totally drowning in? Are you ready to declare, I can't do this, Lord. Please take over, just like you saw here this morning. And let's watch the life and radiance of God flood your being.